All right, I'm live with Emerson Green, and we're going to be discussing the problem of evil or the problem of suffering, which we'll address that in a second. But um, yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm sure most people watching the channel are familiar with your channel, but you haven't been on here before. So, yeah, I just realized as you were talking, I've never actually been on before, but no, you've been. been had an impending debate for like a year now. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Literally, I think a year. I think it's about a year. Tarek, yeah. if you're listening, you've got to stop pushing this off. I know you're afraid to debate panpsychism. <laughs> but yeah, no, I've been watching your channel for like at least a couple of years, I think. But I've never been on, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is exciting. And this is, you know, one of the topics that I enjoy covering the most on this channel. And it was one of the topics that I made this channel specifically to address. And I know you've talked about it a lot on your channel and on Twitter and such. So um, yeah, so from the get go, obviously I titled the video problem of evil, but so we were talking before we went live that we basically consider the problem of evil and problem of suffering to be synonymous. It's basically asking, you know, by an omni God or, you know, all powerful, all loving, God would allow um, beings to suffer and like what's the explanation for that in various forms of that so we're not really getting it making that distinction of like getting into like well what's the you know ontology of evil or whatever it's just like we're just talking about suffering and people would call yeah. it both so yeah yeah we're not you I mean you're not going to try to turn it around on me and be like how can you even say there's such a thing as evil on your right. atheistic worldview no, well, once I mean, once you recognize that evil is just a privation, I mean, the whole problem just goes <laughs> away. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually ask my followers on Twitter, um, like how important the, like how important arguments from evil were to their atheism, and the majority said that they were at least somewhat important. Like, I think it was split, sort of like a third, a third, a third, like. A third said very important, a third said somewhat, and a third said not at all important <laughs> to their atheism, um, which is interesting to me. But yeah, I think that lots of atheists um, and lots of theists kind of misunderstand the problem of evil, and that's okay. You know, there's plenty to misunderstand at plenty of points. I like have, like, I'm certain that I have an imperfect understanding of it. I mean, it's like a massive problem. It's been around for literally thousands of years, and there's like more literature being produced about it like every day. But um, when I first became an atheist, arguments from evil didn't really have anything to do with my atheism. And I think a lot of that had to do with me just not understanding what they were, um, which is in large part, um, you know, Frank Turek's fault <laughs> and people like him just, you know, misrepresenting what the problem was. Um, and just having kind of a weird epistemology to begin with. But yeah, I, I mean, I ended up reversing my opinion. So it wasn't important to me at all. There's even an audio record of me not caring that much about the problem of evil. And yeah, it just eventually I, I did a 180 and now it's probably the main reason that I'm an atheist. If, it, if you could just put in brackets arguments from evil, I would just be an agnostic. Um, so yeah, it's the thing that tips me over into atheism. Yeah. And I think it's the one point that at least in principle that could convince me of the atheist position. Cause I, I do think it's a, uh, or, you know, obviously, whatever strong form one thinks is the strongest form. Um, yeah, I think it's the strongest argument against theism and then by extension against Christian Christian theism. And really, I think it's one of the strongest arguments in philosophy. I mean, most arguments either feel like irrelevant like, or they're 
just like not that compelling, but this is one that's like pretty difficult to deal with. And I can definitely sympathize with the you know theists just saying they don't know, and I don't blame somebody for that. Um, but it, it's definitely something I want to have like the best answer response that I can. And I'm not. And I know I know you're a big fan of the skeptical theist position, but <laughs> I'm I'm not huge. <laughs> I'm not huge on it just because it's not satisfying. Like if I gave an argument for God and you were saying like, oh, you know, there are things we can't know. I wouldn't really, I mean, I, I would grant it to you, but I wouldn't like find that very satisfying. Like I would still want to, I would say like, no, like I've got a good argument. Like you're just dodging it. Like, it's, like yeah. I feel like that would be the sentiment. So yeah, it's definitely possible. There are reasons we can't know, but I still want to like have a actual, at least, you know, somewhat worked out response that I can, you know, work with beyond just saying, I don't know. You're saying you want the world to make sense instead of just appealing to human ignorance when you can't answer a problem for your worldview. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. Not I find yeah, a lot of, a lot of theists, especially like in, well, the irony is it's like, if you talk to people that don't study philosophy at all, they're kind of like content with saying, I don't know. And then if you talk to like people who really dig into like philosophy or religion, they tend to be like big on skeptical theism. <laughs> so it's like, there's this like, obviously the technicalities of it are different, but there's this kind of convergence in that regard, I think. I mean, maybe I'm being uncharitable, but I just don't, yeah, I just don't find saying I don't know is like a satisfying response to something that you want to have an answer to. I mean, there's some stuff I recognize I can't figure out, but I recognize somebody else could, like some math problems or something. But like with this, it's like something we have like familiarity with. Like I want, it's not that it's too complicated necessarily. It's that we just, it's hard to see what a good answer would be like. So yeah, I'm just not at all satisfied with the skeptical theist. Although, I mean, in fairness, like if I, if all theodicies fail, like, I might still, I would probably lean more like on a Morian shift where it'd be like, well, I don't like skeptical theism, but I'm still like my reasons for theism. But definitely, I thought all theodicies like failed, like totally. I mean, that, that would definitely rub against my beliefs. I wouldn't be satisfied with like appealing to skeptical theism. So. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I just can't deal with the skepticism about our own cognitive and moral faculties, like our inability to make judgments really like, I think it ultimately, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to make like some of the more standard arguments about it being too skeptical. I'm saying that it seems to me to involve like an unacceptable kind of skepticism, if that makes sense. I kind of articulate this better in a, I mean, I made an episode about skeptical theism and I took a clip out of it and, and posted it recently about um, this type, like the kind of thing that skeptical theism leads to. I'd, I'd rather not talk about it now because it sure. raises my book. <clears throat> I have to be careful too, because um, you're just constantly accused of misrepresenting skeptical theists, um, basically no matter what. One time I made a tweet. I mean, and, you are right now. You're in the skepticism. <laughs> well, because I'm saying it's wrong, so it has to be. But um, one time I made a joke on Twitter, like just at the expense of skeptical theism. And I, I knew that they were going to say I was misrepresenting it. So I, I literally went to the um, like internet encyclopedia of philosophy entry to make sure that I, I wasn't like, I was like, okay, I'm going to word for word, like make sure that I'm not misrepresenting the view. And I was still, you know, accused of like, oh, that's not what the view is. It's like, okay, then <laughs> I don't really, it just seems to be a pretty common um, tactic. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that would be good to like focus on in our discussion. I'm going to let you present, you know, whatever flimsy arguments you brought now whatever versions of the problem of evil you want 
um, to look at. And then obviously there's a lot, but there's some I think that you know you probably favor more than others. And then I want to compare the theodicy I've developed, which you know I'm fond of, but I recognize other people may not like. And then also with the soul building view, because that tends to be the most popular, at least as part of a case that a lot of apologists um, will make if they're not appealing to skeptical theism and just kind of show how those two theodicies might respond. And obviously there are other theodicies and responses. So um, so if that sounds good, why don't you present, you know, the first one um, that you want to go over and we can kind of take it from there. Okay. Um so I guess the, the version of the argument, I guess I should say there are different arguments from evil. Like there is no problem of evil or argument from evil. There are arguments from evil. So, and they differ in their aim and their logical structure. So if you've heard one, it doesn't mean you've heard them all. And if you have a response to one, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a response to all of them. So I think that some people, you know, have a tendency to, uh, think that it's just one argument or something like that, or they can, they can boil them all down to like, um, you know, if God real, why bad thing happened or something like that. And that's definitely not the case. It's kind of a dead giveaway that you've never actually looked into the literature. But, you know, one of the arguments from evil that I like the most is the argument from teleological evil, which I first came across in Philippe Leon and Josh Rasmussen's dialogue, um, is God the best explanation of things. And that's a really great book. Um, I would highly recommend that. But uh, there's kind of a similar argument from Quentin Smith, the argument from evil natural laws. So, um, you know, there are sort of, there, there are natural laws, like for instance, laws about predation. So it's just a natural law that animals must savagely kill and devour each other in order to survive. And, you know, Smith's argument is like, if there are evil natural laws like that, then God doesn't exist. Um, Leon's argument is a little different. It's just about the existence of natural systems in virtue of their design plan, like in, when they're acting in accordance with their natural purposes, they produce suffering. And more often than not, suffering to non-moral, non-rational agents. So it's one thing if, you know, there's uh, natural evil, like an earthquake or something, and it's just kind of a byproduct of the earthquake or the tsunami that people and animals will suffer. Okay. But there are other things, there are other forms of natural evil, like teleological evil, where there are these like natural systems that are aimed at producing suffering. You know, like an earthquake doesn't have a purpose, but the, um, you know, like the North American short-tailed shrew, it like secretes this venom so it paralyzes its prey and then it grazes on its prey for days. It eats it alive for days. <laughs> like, and that's not like a perversion of how it's supposed to work. It's not a misuse of its faculties. That's the design plan. You know, it's behaving exactly the way it's supposed to. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, if anything, that seems like the product of malevolent design. Um, it's not like poor design. It's very efficient design. It's efficient at producing suffering for you know non-rational, non-moral agents. So yeah, it just seems like a pretty crazy inference to like look at that and then think, oh yeah, you know, I bet a an unsurpassably great being of perfect love designed uh, this particular you know natural system or is ultimately responsible for it. Again, like moral evil seems easier to explain than this. Other kinds of natural evil seem easier to explain than this, but like this seems like a, a particularly difficult kind of natural evil. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> yeah, the teleological argument from evil, I do, I do think is pretty challenging. I remember one time I was, I saw a box of giant scorpion like um, carcasses or whatever it's called. And 
mm. or exoskeleton or whatever the technical term is. And I was like, I don't know. I just started thinking like, why would God, I mean, I mean, I accept evolution. So yeah, there's an evolutionary process, but assuming God, you know, has um, instantiated the, you know, laws and, you know, that led to that process, like, why would that be a part of creation, something like that? And it was definitely like, yeah, it seems like just like, um, maybe it's not the most difficult to explain and always in terms of like the suffering produced, although it can be, but it's just in terms of just the oddity of it. Like, why would that be a part of creation? Like, yeah, I do think that it's, it definitely sticks out and it's not addressed usually like a lot of times in like debates or the literature, it's more just like focusing on like, you know, evil and or suffering in the abstract or like, particular example of horrendous suffering but this argument isn't usually addressed as much it seems and obviously yeah. it's somewhat more recent in how it's been focused on and yeah i definitely recommend um josh rasmussen and Philippe the honest dialogue book i think that's it's, i think it's the best philosophy of religion book that i've read it's like if, I, if there's one that i could tell people to read that's the one i would recommend yeah i think i would agree actually because it seems like it has something for for everyone at pretty much every level of the discussion. Like if you're just getting introduced to it or if you're, or if, even if you've been around the block, you know, like it still seems like it's a, yeah, it has the most mass appeal, I would say. But yeah, I mean, I, I really like that book a lot, but yeah. Yeah, I think both representatives are also really strong on each other side too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, there was something else I wanted to say about teleological evil. Um, oh yeah. It's a, uh, I think I can't remember exactly what you said a moment ago. I think about it. Um, you said it doesn't represent like the majority of evil or something along those lines. Well, I was saying maybe like example wouldn't necessarily of teleological evil may or suffering or whatever you want to call it wouldn't necessarily be like the most horrendous in every case. Like somebody could say, "Oh, well, who right. cares? There's a scorpion." Like some people's reaction might be like, "Why is that a big deal?" And it's like, well maybe that's not as emotionally difficult as like, you know, some violent tragedy that occurred, but maybe like the violent tragedy maybe could be explained by free will. And maybe that's like a sufficient explanation, even though obviously it may not be a total explanation, but, but like the scorpion just, it seems like the scorpion could have just not had a poisonous stinger. Like, I don't <laughs> like it's, yeah, you know, it's just more difficult. It just sticks out as more like gratuitous in my, or harder to account for with the traditional type answers. Um, well, especially because a scorpion's not like a moral agent. It's just like a, I mean, I don't know what, what it thinks or if it thinks, but yeah, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> well, you see, you have to distinguish between the, the intellectual problem of evil and yeah. the emotional problem of evil. Yeah. I just no. want to focus on the emotional one. <laughs> that's the one I like to focus on, too. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, like, that's your problem. I mean, you're just bringing all your emotions to the table. <laughs> I, mean, just... I'm, um, I think that uh, it actually does account for some of the more horrendous evils and like a pretty shocking amount of it because predation would fall under this category of teleological yeah. evil. So I think like predation is the best example of teleological evil. And that does account for quite a bit of suffering, <laughs> quite a bit of animal yeah. suffering. Yeah, I can't. I just mean, even, even setting it aside, it's like, say there's just some scorpion and it never stings anybody. It's still odd yeah. that there is like, why did God make something like that? It's still yeah. The appearance that. of malevolent design is pretty weird, um, for sure. But it also just, yeah, I mean, I think that the whole issue of predation is like one of the starker 
examples of like, you know, it, I think that is really strong evidence against the idea that there's this perfectly loving being who's ultimately responsible for the natural order. Um, but I think, you know, in part because it obviously didn't have to be this way. Like creatures could have been scavengers, they could have been herbivores, they could have absorbed energy from the sun. There, there's absolutely no reason, or it seems to me there's no reason that it had to be the case that animals had to savagely kill and devour each other just to feed themselves and their children. Like, you know, we've been like put in this biological order where it's like animals are sort of pitted against each other in this fight to the death basically. And it's like, oh yeah, and this was produced by a perfectly loving being. Like what? I don't, I don't, I personally don't think it was, <laughs> but for me, it is actually pretty, um, I mean, we were just joking earlier, but it is kind of emotionally compelling because, um, you know, like Quentin Smith opens up his paper about evil natural laws with a camping trip where he heard an animal, you know, being killed and eaten by another animal. And it like, you know, it really affected him. Um, but, uh, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, I think I'd just be an agnostic if it weren't for arguments from evil. And um, I've been getting more interested in kind of fringe interpretations of Christianity that are kind of uniquely capable of handling most of my objections, um, with the exception of arguments from evil, um, those fringe interpretations being a universalist, by the way. But, um, you know, I, I remember I was feeling kind of agnostic this day. It was like a week or two ago. And uh, I was taking a walk at night. And then I I heard some animal, you know, being killed and eaten by some other animal. And I was like, oh, yeah, God doesn't exist. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot for a second. Um, but yeah, just the whole issue of teleological evil and predation in particular, the fact that it's it's just it's in virtue of the way things um, are supposed to work. It just seems very, very improbable to me that, um, you know, a perfectly loving and perfectly good being would design things this way, as opposed to something like just indifference um, or uh, or some kind of like very limited force, you know, something that has a limited capacity or, um, you know, it can't bring about, it doesn't have the kind of power that God is said to have. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. if, if things are indifferent, then of course you'd expect, um, why? I mean, why wouldn't you expect there to be some malevolent appearing design in nature? Like, yeah, there'd be some natural systems aimed towards producing pleasure, some aimed at producing suffering. I mean, on indifference, it's just not surprising, but on theism, it's it seems very, very surprising. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, so then looking at the Odyssey, the two theodicies I wanted to focus on, um, so I'll just start with the soul building one because it's not the one that, you know, I defend... Um, but I, that's the one that gets uh, defended a lot. So I guess a soul building type defender might respond to this by saying, you know, like Cameron Bertuzzi and like Trent Doherty, you know, wrote his book defending this type of view that like, well, animals can, um, you know, grow in virtue as well. And, you know, maybe predation allows them to, to do that. And then maybe we can grow in virtue from being, you know, having to deal with predators and such. So they would kind of like, try to weave it into that and i'll let you respond of course but i i guess i, I feel like that's like con somewhat consistent i mean it's a consistent response i guess i struggle to find it very satisfying because it seems like well i just have a lot of issues with the soul building view that it's not it's not that it's illogical or inconsistent i just feel like it doesn't explain the data with um that great but yeah yeah no i mean soul building seems well suited to explain some evil 
Um, and I'm kind of partial to the view that the causal history of things like really matters. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's like an irrational view or not, but um, it makes sense to me that like, oh, if God just created us in like, in some kind of final form, you know, and like just with all the, I don't know, memories or something like that just, I don't know, something about that would seem very phony to me. Like I just wouldn't, um, even if I can't really articulate it, I just, I, I have this intuition that the causal history of organisms actually matters or the causal history of conscious beings. So I do think that soul building, um, as opposed to what some people have proposed, like, well, why couldn't God just create us in this, you know, like whatever the end product is going to be, through all this soul building, why couldn't God just create us like that? <laughs> um, and I think that, yeah, I think in some cases of suffering that soul, I think soul building is kind of well suited to answer it, but I have no idea how it could even apply to teleological evil. Like um, even given what you just said, it just doesn't ring true to me. It's just so, it seems so hollow. It's like, I mean, I think that all theodicies are kind of obvious failures and I mean, obviously, that's why I'm an atheist, but um, but I think that, like, a lot of them just feel like uh, they're just trying to find a way to justify the view. Like, I kind of wonder, when I look at a lot of the Odysseys, I'm like, does anyone actually think this is the way the world is, though? Like, are they just trying to respond? Are they just trying to find a way to support their view? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what atheists do with morality and consciousness <laughs> and that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so you're not going to have much of an argument for me on consciousness. It does feel like with physicalism, there are lots of people where it feels like they're just trying to defend their view and not really trying to figure out the way the world is. But that's another conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that that was just a joke, by the way, for people listening. I, I think, anyways, that's a different topic. But um, yeah, with soul building, I mean, just to go through the issues I have with it, just real quick. And obviously, this is just a quick summary, but it just seems like God could create people like himself with those virtues without having them have to go through the process or like maybe there would be need to be some kind of process but like i would think it, it could be more benevolent like like catholics you know believe in purgatory and i like to think of purgatory as like place of like growth and like it just seems like it could be a more controlled environment like we don't need like even if te some teleological evils could contribute to um, growing in virtue and such is certainly possible. And maybe animals can grow in virtue too, although I'm kind of skeptical of that. But like, let's just grant all of that. It still seems like <clears throat> there are other ways to do it that don't require teleological evil. It might take longer. I mean, maybe, um, but that's okay. Like it could take longer, We, but it doesn't mean, it, it just, it, it's hard to think that like the teleological evil is like really essential to the process. Like why does the scorpion need a stinger in order for there to be soul building? And like, it's just, it's really hard for me to see like the, the plausible contribution. Somebody could come up with a way, but, and especially when you think about like the distribution, it's like not everybody's even exposed to the same like teleological evils across the globe and such. If it was so essential, it's just, it just seems like it's a real scatter shot. Like there are animals that like most people will never encounter but if you did, they cause horrific pain and suffering. And like, it's just hard for me to see how like that's integral to soul building. Not to say like one couldn't find a way, but that's kind of the difficulties that I have. Yeah. And I mean, I think that non-moral agents, it just seems kind of obvious they can't enjoy any kind of soul building. I mean, like, I don't, 
it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, some people have kind of suggested, yeah, like, oh, there's this animal heaven. And then, you know, they, there's kind of like the soul building process continues after death or something. And it's like, I mean, that leads to further questions, which I know you're not like defending that now, so I won't pursue them, but it raises a lot of interesting questions when people, you know, try to, I think like stretch soul building kind of past it's like where it makes any sense to apply it. Um, but yeah, I don't see how soul building could possibly help with, with, you know, hundreds of millions of years of unnecessary animal predation. Yeah. And I mean, I like the animal afterlife view. I mean, that's the view that I favor, but it's like, well, it still doesn't, I mean, is there going to be lots of teleological evils in the animal afterlife? Like it doesn't seem like that's the narrative like that. I don't see why that would be plausible or like it still, it just re-raises the same question again. Like it's just hard to see how, I mean, I guess somebody could come up with a story kind of like, like John Hick, who's kind of credited with like the modern, you know, chief defender of soul building. I, you know, I guess his view extended to like, there's lots of afterlife. So I guess somebody could say like, it's really essential that somebody experiences this type of predator and that they will eventually. It's some, I just find that to be like really implausible. Like why, why does the suffering have to come in that way? And it just seems like a lot of suffering doesn't result in growth in virtue anyways like i don't see like why getting stung by a scorpion necessarily makes somebody a better person and, right. and if it, even if it does like there wasn't another way like it just seems really forced and like yeah so it's not like i want to charge the defender of this view with like incoherence it just seems like it doesn't map onto the data very like it's it just seems really stretched to me to make it work for everything yeah, I mean, you're putting it too nicely, honestly. Like, um, yeah, I mean, like the idea there's some kind of soul building involved when the North American short-tailed true is grazing on its victim. <laughs> like, you know, these are just two creatures that are just like, you know, probably not very complex creatures. You know, they're just driven mostly by instinct. And um, yeah, they're just doing what they're designed to do. They're just, ca <laughs> they're just causing suffering to each other because that's exactly how they were designed. That's how it was set up. You know, there's no perversion going on. There's no like misuse of some kind of faculty. There's like, you know, there's nothing like that happening in the cases of teleological evil. Yeah. So I want to present my theodicy, which of course I have a longer video on and I've defended it some, and I'm not saying it's like a knockdown response, but I, I do think it's plausible to my mind though. And I, I recognize people's, you know, thoughts and intuitions can differ in their other responses out there and such but so the i call it the perfect wealth theodicy and i know you're at least somewhat familiar with it and i'll just explain it in short and then explain how i would try to use it to respond to teleological evil so the idea is that um in creating you know there's a kind of causal system or causal nexus that we might you know call laws of physics or nature it doesn't really matter what words we use but any universe that God creates that's going to be causally regular and argue has to have, be um, interconnected in some sense with this causal system. And if this causal system was fully conformed to God's intellect and will, and by that I just mean like God's innermost desires and intentions you would have for creation, then, so again, the system was fully conformed to God's intellect and will, we would get a, a universe like Christians imagine, like the new heavens and new earth. There's no suffering. Everybody's in a harmonious 
loving relation with God, and that would be a great world, but it would also be a world where everybody's in a necessarily in a loving relation with God, because it's just the ideal reality. But I argue that it's unjust for God to force people into that kind of relation. They need a chance to be able to um, at least have some kind of opportunity to choose to enter that relation with God or not. So he creates the universe with a partially conformed causal system. So a system that's partially conformed to his intellect and will, but then you get a universe where the causal system doesn't fully align with God's intellect and will. So you get a system of creation, of evolution and such, but it's one that is only, so the, the analogy I kind of like to use, it'd be like a computer that has viruses, like it needs to be debugged and it's not because there's like literal um, things like anti-God viruses. It's just like the system just doesn't fully match God's intentions. And again, that's to respect the um, free will of at least rational creatures. And then the way that that extends to animals and teleological evils, again, is because the laws are what I'm imagining is what drives the evolutionary system. But if this system of laws is only partially conformed to God's intentions, then it's only going to partially match his overall creative intentions. And then that's going to um, inadvertently lead to these teleological evils and such. So obviously there's more that can be addressed and there are a number of objections that can be raised. But um, So what, what are your thoughts on that? I know you probably have a lot of objections, but go ahead. I mean, I have objections to the perfect will theodicy in general, but I've never even thought about trying to apply it to teleological <laughs> evil. I mean, yeah, I guess if you can justify the overall point about you can't create a world that's perfectly in line with God's will. Um, if you can justify that overall point, then you could expect things that um, would be evidence against theism because, um, you know, if, if it's something like malevolent design or something, well, okay. I mean, if you've already explained why you think it has to be the case that, you know, we start off in a world that doesn't perfectly line up with God's will, then, okay, that might make, uh, that might make sense. But I think there are kind of like deeper problems with the theodicy that, I mean, like, I, I wouldn't, I, I like, I literally did not think about it <laughs> until just now of like trying to apply the perfect will theodicy to teleological evil. Well, so um, I win. But, <laughs> um, well, I do have some, I mean, I guess I was thinking we'd save theodicies more for the end, but it okay, makes more sure. sense to do it this way of like, okay, yeah, um, that's fine. I mean, we could save. Well, I mean, we could, if you want to go through some other problems and then um, insane. No, no, we can do it. This, is, this okay. is a better way to do it. I just, okay, go ahead. it just feels weird to like launch into my general problem with perfect will theodicy. Um, oh, I understand. You're a little topic. scared. But. <laughs> so as I understand it, it's like, um, you know, it would be immoral for God to create us in a way where we just like naturally love him for the same way it would be wrong to give someone a love potion. You know, like it's not really this like, freely chosen thing it's more like you were just i mean you used a word a second ago force people into a relationship with god i'll try not to get too hung up on this but i like am tempted to just quibble with the word force because typically i feel like that means someone wants to do one thing and you make them do another thing but if you're creating them with a will such that they just want to love you and they just find a relationship with you irresistible that's not really what force means um it's like a different kind of thing yeah, well, that, yeah, and it tends to be a lot of the pushback I get uh, for people who have engaged with the theodicy 
the most will be um, an in the intuition about free will and if somebody's attracted to compatibilism or you know what what are the moral parameters around like a forced relation that usually is where they end up pushing back so I can understand that um, yeah I mean I, I do think it seems plausible at least that if God created everybody and they never had an opportunity to not fully love God, that, that does strike me as that could be problematic. Like, I mean, I get what you're saying. Like it's, it's or at least what it sounds like you're saying is like they would need to kind of not be in that situation and then be forced to do it. But if they're already created in it, then it wasn't really forced. But I don't know. My intuition though, is that somebody needs to like start out at like a neutral or at least somewhat neutral ground and then, you know, decide if they want to go into a deeper relation with God or or not. But obviously, that's a, that's an intuition that I have that you know you may not share. Yeah, I mean, and I am a compatibilist, but I mean, I'm willing to just sort of grant some of the starting points for the theodicy because I think there are other problems with it that are um, deeper. So I, I feel like God has already done the thing that you're saying He wouldn't have done. So I was asking if you were an annihilationist earlier, and I. I'm not sure. Did you say that you were, you seemed kind of uh, uncertain about it? Well, I, I mean, I'm fine with annihilationism in terms of like, I think it makes sense if somebody, like I'm a hopeful universalist, I do hope everybody is saved, but I don't know if that will be the case. So um, I don't think God is going to torture somebody or allow somebody to be you know, tortured for all eternity. But what like the nature of the eternal separation would be, I don't, no, it could be that they're annihilated or it could be they go to some kind of like sleep type state. Like if you've seen the movie, like what dreams may come, like Robin Williams kind of finds his wife in this like comatose type state. And that that's kind of the view. Like I have a video defending that kind of view speculatively or, or it could be something like C.S. Lewis, Great Divorce, where people are like wondering in this like shadowy type realm. Like, I don't know. I don't think God's going to torture somebody for all eternity, but the nature of hell I don't know what that would be, um, but I, but yeah, hopefully that makes sense. I love that phrase, hopeful universalist. Like, yeah, I'm a hopeful lottery winner. Oh, that's nice. You're a hopeful universalist. I'm, I mean, I guess it does signal one useful thing, which is like, you're not one of these um, freaks or psychos who like wants there to be eternal conscious torment, <laughs> um, who's like actively rooting for it. So that's, that's at least nice, but I just, I, that phrase does, other than that, I mean, it does signal that one useful thing, but other than that, that phrase, hopeful universalist always kind of gets under my skin. It's like, are you a universalist or not? Just say yes or no. Like, it's well, not just you, it's a really common term. Well, it's because, well, I think there is some grounds for it, though. I mean, it's pretty rich coming from a compatibilist. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, but I mean, it's saying like, yeah, we think it's plausible everybody will be saved, but we can't say like definitively. I just don't know. It could be that like it is the like um, given the nature of free will and like there are people who will absolutely reject relation with God and there's nothing God could do if he's not going to force or however you want to put it. He's not going to um, make them go to heaven to enter a relation with him. Then like seems like eternal separation is then the the result and like that that does seem reasonably plausible to my mind um i mean not to go down this rabbit hole but like i think the standard response at this point is like well no rational person who's aware of the relevant facts would freely choose to not be in a relationship with god once they're aware of uh the relevant you know part, pieces of information they might not be aware of now but once they 
you know, like a rational creature in full possession of their faculties would not freely choose to reject a relationship with God eternally. Like you, it's it's impossible for someone to be eternally separated from God is like the standard response at this point, but we don't have to start yeah. arguing about universal. Well, sorry. And I guess to respond to that, like I, I think it is, I think if somebody was actively like willing their misery, that does seem implausible to me. But the idea of like actively rejecting a relation with God's simpliciter, like that doesn't seem that implausible to me. I mean, obviously if they fully understood the ramifications, they might not, but it seems like that that's kind of part of the moral question is whether or not they're willing to um, enter into a relation with God. And then they, um, that does entail these other benefits, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that'll be a different. That's a yeah, good end back to the, to the point about the perfect will theodicy actually, because yeah. my claim is that God has already done the thing that you're saying he, he can't do. Okay. He's because on the view that you just outlined of like, you know, okay, you know, there's separation from God. It's eternal, probably like, whether that means annihilation or, you know, something like the great divorce or, or whatever. The point is there's eternal separation from God and that's bad. Okay. And like, you know, so the thing that you're outlining here is basically God didn't create a strong desire in us to be in a relationship with God, but he created two options. One of which is a relationship with God. The other option is something that we have a strong desire to avoid which is just a roundabout way of doing the same thing. Like, so he, you know, so he's basically issuing this death threat where you're going to be annihilated if you don't enter into a relationship with God. And I mean, like our fear of death is a pretty common, you know, constant thing throughout human history, like in literature and art. And it's like, we're terribly afraid of death. So even in the best case scenario on your view where we're annihilated as opposed to, you know, something worse, you know, it's just like God created us with this fear of death and this, fear of being tortured and this, you know, fear of, uh, and, and all these like things that we des would desire to avoid if we knew about them. No one wants to go to hell for an eternity. And, um, most people, I think if they're being honest, don't want to die. <laughs> and, um, I, I'm just saying the thing I just said is in reference to a bunch of people on Twitter who were saying that they wouldn't rather not have like an eternal afterlife of bliss or something, which I think is cope. But right, uh, so are you saying that their response is a cope or you're saying Yeah, that, yeah. People like okay. people saying like, oh I, I wouldn't want to have an eternal afterlife of bliss. It's like uh, as opposed to dying, like you'd rather <laughs> die than have eternal life of yeah. an eternal life of a generally positive character. Like that's Right. I don't, yeah, I've never, I do sympathize with a lot of arguments and responses atheists, agnostics give, but yeah, I've never understood this, like, well, heaven would get boring, or it's like, well, what point would, like, eternal bliss get boring? I don't, like, it would feel good. It would be nice. it. <laughs> I mean, like, it, I mean, yeah, I can picture versions of the afterlife that would suck. Like, I wouldn't want to be one of those angels that flies around God's head saying, holy, holy, holy for all eternity. That would be awful. <laughs> but I, I, um, just because there's this failure of um, any kind of compelling description of heaven from certain quarters, it doesn't, I mean, like that doesn't mean that any kind of version of heaven just like would get boring or, I mean, again, another discussion, maybe we should have another talk about um, like soteriology and the afterlife and stuff, but what, what it, just to bring it back around, it seems like you're saying God wouldn't create us with a desire to be in a relationship with him, but instead what he has done is create the situation where there are two options one of them is a relationship with him. And the alternative is something that we are deathly afraid of. 
So it, it seems like he is actually doing this thing that you said he wouldn't do of like kind of forcing people or coercing people into a relationship with him. It's just in a, it's like one step removed from the more direct way. And secondly, I mean, this is in addition to that point, Christians claim to feel that their relationship with God is irresistible. You know, they use language explicitly, like they're a slave to Christ and they're not upset about it. <laughs> and that's kind of why I think there wouldn't be anything wrong with God creating us with a desire to be in a relationship with him in the first place. Because it's like, we would just be doing what we wanted to do. We'd be happy about it. God would be happy about it. And it would be fine. <laughs> and like, again, this already appears to be the situation. Like, you know, God is supposed to be irresistible. And Christians, some Christians claim to find God irresistible. And, you know, I mean, that seems better to me than issuing threats. But either way, it's, I mean, by your definition of coercive, both of those options are coercive. But I mean, where I would disagree is I actually don't think it would be coercive just to create beings to want to be in a relationship with God. Okay. So, yeah, so I do think people do have a natural desire for what's good, whatever that, like, and we can, I'll just define that as like something fulfilling, so like eating, sleeping, whatever fulfills somebody is what I'm calling good. And I do think being in relation with God is the ultimate good thing, but I do think there is like personal component, like, like, I guess to, I'm, trying, I'm thinking of an analogy, kind of like Beauty and the Beast or something where it's like there's a component of like, well, this aspect is good, but you have to like accept the person first type of thing. Um, somebody could fill out whatever they want. But the idea is like, I think that, yeah, we do have a natural desire for what's good. And that is by extension God. But I do think it is important that people have a freedom in how they choose to cultivate that their specific personal relation with God. And I do know, obviously, yeah, there are some Christians who say it's irresistible. I don't have that view. I don't think it's irresistible. I think it's attractive, but I think it's a cultivated attraction. And I, I think God works. So I, I really like a, a synergistic view of grace that God is working with somebody's will, but they are responding to him in a um, libertarian free will kind of sense um, to cultivate that relation. And so I don't, and, I, and our fear of death and such is a rationally based fear. Um, so in that sense, it is from God. But to me, like, if, if the axiom is granted that God, it would be wrong for God to, to um, force or start somebody in the relation with him or however, one wants to cash that out if that's wrong it seems to me like the two alternatives would be somebody is ultimately in relation with god or they're not like it is it seems like it would be to my mind like a metaphysical necessity that it would be in relation with god for all eternity by the end at least or not and then whatever that not is would rationally be a bad thing but it's still to my mind morally important that somebody has that choice but but i recognize that Obviously, you can push back on that. I think it's it's interesting, though, that you think it is resistible. I mean, I think if God existed, then he would be irresistible if you had, like, a, a full enough understanding of God. Oh, yeah, I agree. Like, yeah, you'd be held his essence, and yeah, it would be, but that would be, that to me would be um, coercive if God just did that immediately. And the thing is, like, that's not, and that's, one why, that's, why you, that's why that I can't believe that. That actually has been in the tradition, though, at times. So it's not like something I just made up. Like that, that actually goes back. At least there were some like medieval thoughts on that and such. So. I mean, that's why I was saying that eternal separation 
as a result of a free choice just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you know, like you just granted, I think that if God was fully revealed to someone, then it would be irresistible. So I, that's what I was trying to say earlier. It's like if someone actually did kind of have a full enough understanding of of God, then they wouldn't see it like, you know, Christopher Hitchens saying that, you know, he's like a big brother or something. Um, you know, that's just if if you're if it's any sort of negative thing whatsoever, then it it's actually not this, you know, unsurpassably great being of perfect love. Um, you know, but there like, isn't different or sorry. No, no, I was just saying that, like, if you're thinking that it would make sense to, oh, I wouldn't want this God to exist, then it's not really an unsurpassably great being of perfect love. And I'm saying if there is such a being and they were to reveal themselves to you enough that you kind of understood, um, you know, however imperfectly, like, uh, what was actually going on, then you would not choose to be separated from that being. Right. So I think that there's a distinction, though, in my mind between... God's essence, and I mean, obviously, there's not a meta. In my mind, there's not a metaphysical distinction between like God's attributes, but because He's just one, my view, one undivided substance. But there is a epistemic, I guess, distinction on our part between a relation with the uh, the personhood of God and a beholding of the good things that um, beholding God's essence would bestow. So, somebody who beholds God would be so like filled with pleasure and bliss and such then yeah they wouldn't turn away but that doesn't mean that that person actually like cares about god as a personal being now i'm not at all implying that there are people who are like although there may be but people like actively willfully hating god but i think if somebody is an immoral person and you know being like a just and charitable person or seeking after justice and charity is also an extension of god's character then i think being immoral is a um, kind of inchoate or implicit way of, of severing one's relation with God. So I just see all these things as, as epistemically distinct, but still interrelated. So like, yeah, if somebody beholds God's essence, they're going to be like a, a mosquito or whatever attracted towards one of those, you know, uh, blue lights, but it doesn't mean they actually care about God. So they, I think you need to, I, in my view, somebody needs to care about God before God um, blesses them with his his uh, fullness of being. What do you think about that? Um, I guess I'm just not totally grasping that distinction um, about how you could find God irresistible but not really care about God, like on a on a personal level. It seems like what I was imagining was God's like revealing Himself to you, and then as a direct consequence of that revelation, yeah, you're attracted to God. Um, but it's not like in some shallow sense, like it's because of your understanding of what God actually is. Like, I thought that's what was, what would be going on in that scenario. Well, I guess like, going, so going back to like the beauty and the beast analogy, and, and I assume you're somewhat familiar with this. I've story, actually but... never seen that movie. Oh, oh, that's why, that's why you don't get it. That's why it's not clicking <laughs> for me. <laughs> you, just don't, you just have terrible taste. <laughs> no, but like, okay, so I mean, at the beginning of the story, though, there's like this arrogant prince and this um, like um, hag, or maybe that's a rude word, but some older, I mean, like that's how it's presented in the story. She's like an older, like, like beggar comes to the castle and wants him to give her something or take a flower or something. Anyways, he like turns her away and then she turns into this beautiful like enchantress and then she curses him. But that's not the point I'm focusing on. The point is though, he then he like repents like, oh, I didn't know you were so beautiful. But it's like, 
well, really, if he was a decent person, he would have been charitable to her anyways. So I'm saying the person who, yes, they might uh, behold God's essence and want to uh, be in communion with him because they see he's so beautiful and such, but they need to be a charitable person first and want to be like God in his character and actually want to care for not just God, but for just to be a loving person first before they are... Um, before they're enjoying like the beauty and splendor and such. So that's kind of the, the epistemic distinction that I make. Okay. Um, do you mind if I like take a, if I zoom out for a second and just to kind of rehash like where we're at, I think right now, um, I think that, okay, so we were talking about teleological evil. We were trying to apply the perfect will, the odyssey to teleological evil. And I was saying that, um, prima facie, it seems like if you're just making this general assertion that like we kind of have to have a world that is not in line with God's will, like in other words, the world would kind of like look the opposite of how we would ordinarily expect it to look on theism. Like, okay, yeah, if you could make that work, then I, I suppose that that would, yeah, prima facie, it seems like that would follow. So then I wanted to take a look at the perfect will theodicy to see if it actually can justify that sort of um that sort of claim and i'm saying that i don't think it can like i think it so if the perfect will theodicy fails then it can't really be applied to teleological evil and i'm saying i think it does fail because it, the theodicy starts out with saying well god can't do x and what i'm saying is i think god has done x and he's also done y which is basically equivalent to x so i think that it, it just kind of fails on those terms Right. So, yeah, I think that's kind of where we're at. And then, yeah, I mean, I have a differing intuition on that. But, um, yeah, so I think for now that might be where our impasse is. But um, so what we could do is if you want to present or I mean, if you want to critique this theodicy more or make more points, that's fine. Or if you <laughs> want to be more another, fruitful to like come back to it later. Sure. Yeah. We can always discuss it more again in the future because there's other rabbit holes and such. But um so we've been going close to an hour and I do want to address a few questions, but I also want to let you present at least one more problem of evil if you have one that you want to present. I know some of them are kind of similar, but if you want to present one that's maybe a little bit different and we could also look at that, but whatever you want to do is. Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, I, I just wanted to say that I view these arguments. Um, so like the teleological argument from evil argument from evolutionary animal suffering, which is, you know, similar, but distinct. Um, also, uh, Humean arguments from pain and pleasure, like Paul Draper's uh, famous paper from 1989, um, arguments from particular horrendous evils. Like, I don't, I don't really view these in, in like a deductive form or like in a, like in a logical problem of evil sort of approach, like where we're trying to find a contradiction between the proposition God exists and evil exists. Like, I don't know if there's an outright logical contradiction between um, God exists and between certain things that are like undeniably true, I guess, about our world. Um, I tend to just approach things in like a, a more cumulative case fashion, like an inference to the best explanation kind of abductive approach or some kind of um, inductive approach. So I, and again, I'm not, so the way that people tend to approach is like Richard Swinburne or Paul Draper, they they use this explicitly Bayesian approach. And I'm not really married to that 
particular approach, the Bayesian approach. It's for me, it's just about asking whether the world looks like we would expect it to. Like if God, if there's a perfectly loving being at the foundation of reality, that's ultimately responsible for the character of the world. Is this what you would expect the world to look like? And for me, the answer is no. Like I can point to some facts and I can say, I don't think these facts would be facts if that kind of God existed. So, you know, whether or not there are like legitimate criticisms of the Bayesian approach, for me, that thing that I just outlined is much, is much broader than, you know, specifically the Bayesian approach. But anyway, I still do like, you know, Paul Draper's argument from pain and pleasure. Um, that one's kind of complicated. <laughs> um, and if we're short on time, then maybe it's not best to get into. But that's the sort of argument. I actually don't know if there's been any really great art, like counter to that argument. Um, it's kind of actually worth like its own episode. Um, but the other argument that is sort of related to the previous one, but again, it's still kind of distinct is evolutionary animal suffering, which just has to do with the sheer amount of seemingly pointless suffering endured by uh, non-rational, non-moral agents over eons of evolutionary history. And we have to keep in mind that this is actually the method by which God brought about his creation. So he could have used special creation. You know, like he could have done things the way that many Christians actually believe he did. <laughs> you know, like um, a lot of Christians believe in, actually the vast majority of Christians believe in special creation or intelligent design. Um, most Christians reject theistic evolution. Um, so I think it's just a fact that evolution is true and that intelligent design and special creation are false. Um, so, I mean, that's a, that's a separate argument, but I think that it's kind of credulity straining to say that God used this like pitiless process of evolution by natural selection in order to bring things about when he did not have to do that. He could have done things the way that Christians believe he did um, <laughs> instead of the way that he apparently in fact did. Um, and uh, yeah, it just seems like this is such a bizarre tool um, for a perfect being to like bring about his creation, especially, I mean, it's, it's so hard to comprehend the amount of suffering that's taken place in nature, like the suffering endured by wild animals over the last few hundred million years. Um, so yeah, I think when the weight of that really strikes me, it's just like, that's when I feel pretty certain that, you know, perfect being theism is false. Yeah, so I, I look at the <clears throat> argument from evolutionary animal suffering as kind of having a similar structure as the teleological argument in the sense that there's like something I view as being a product of the natural world, or I would say like the laws of the natural world. And then, you know, in the one case, it's resulting in these, um, you know, um, predatory traits and such. And then in this case, it would be more broadly about animal suffering and preying upon each other. But I look at them as being kind of interrelated. So I would give a some the same type of response that we we're yeah discussing. i think that i mean i think they're distinct it's uh, that sort of teleological aspect is not essential to the argument that i just said or that i just stated right but i think that your theodicy like it would basically be the same response yeah. um, from i think the soul building person would respond similarly as well yeah um is is what we were um, at least outlining of course i'm not a huge proponent of that so i know there are people that may think I didn't steel man it as well as they would like. So I can invite I, you onto their channel to. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I will say that 
there's this um this really interesting trend of Christians kind of diminishing the kind of suffering in the world that that we see, you know, especially animal suffering. And I kind of I think this is maybe what's going on. I think that it's like there's a, just a natural tendency for human beings to want to think that they're right and that the people who disagree with them are not just wrong, but obviously wrong. And the problem of evil is a pretty big problem for Christianity. So if you're a Christian and you are subject to this natural human tendency to want to believe that the people who disagree with you are obviously wrong, then you have to think that the problem of evil is just kind of stupid. And you have to think that arguments from evil like obviously fail. And that necessarily involves diminishing the suffering of human beings, the suffering of animals over evolutionary history. So it results in this kind of like moral callousness and this kind of like casual, I don't know how to say it. It's just like this casual callousness about, um, you know, great evil and terrible suffering. And it's genuinely appalling. Like it, it just kind of repels me from Christianity. But um, I think that it's just the product of a, a few normal tendencies for human beings. Like I think what I just outlined is is plausible. Like I think that people just need to think that people who disagree with them are obviously wrong. Okay, well, this is a big problem for your view. So that argument is obviously wrong. Well, dismissing that argument is obviously wrong or diminishing it necessarily involves kind of being a bit callous and um, seemingly like morally inept um, when it comes to, you know, things like animal suffering. Yeah, well, I think you're just letting your emotions take control of yourself <laughs> at this point. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like, I mean, to me, it's like, I def as I said earlier, like I, I can sympathize with the Christian who, you know, doesn't have a full response to the problem of evil. But they, I mean, obviously, like, you know, that's been myself at times. And I'm not saying I have like the answer or whatever. Like, it's a difficult question. But like, especially like some theodicies, I just find so implausible that it's like you can't really like live with thinking that that's really the case like i don't know like for a while i, I kind of like was defending this like butterfly effect type response where it's like well you don't know that this could lead to this this which isn't like full-blown skeptical theism but it's i guess it could be called like kind of like skeptical theism but i look at it as like a response but it's just like i just really don't think that's how things work like it it makes you think it, it kind of leads to like a kind of fatalism where it's like oh everything is good like it, that tragedy actually is like <laughs> important like you just it's like it leads to a lot of cognitive dissonance and like yeah so i do think that well i don't think like christians responding like oh the problem of evil is weak like it doesn't necessarily mean they're like a bad person or something but like i i do think it can lead to an unnatural view of the world that it's not like and it's not really the view that like seems to be conveyed in like the New Testament. Like it seems like like the New Testament's treating suffering as a like, problem, not like, oh, like this isn't a big deal. Like I mean, I, I know sometimes Christians will appeal to like the book of Job and such, but that gets a whole other thing. Like the Bible has lots of different perspectives and, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't mean to say that like Christians are bad people. I'm just saying, especially with like uh, I don't know, like younger men and so like men who are our age, I've noticed like John Buck, <laughs> like John Buck, who's, <laughs> I mean, morally depraved, kind of a retrobate, but um, 
No, it's like uh, on Thomas Twitter, especially. I mean, that's like the most depraved cesspool imaginable. But yeah, I've noticed that it, it seems like a big problem, um, more so with like some demographics than others, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But yeah, if you want to be kind of like overconfident and cocky about your view as a theist, then I think that that, you know, pretty naturally leads to a kind of callousness and um, <laughs> yeah, kind of like almost like stunting of your moral faculties. This is where I start sounding kind of like an anti-theist. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's unfortunate, but um, it's something I've seen enough times that it, it like really bothers me. And it's not just from, you know, random uh, Thomists on Twitter. It's also from like William Lane Craig and and others. But oh, speaking of William Lane Craig, he actually, I've heard him explain skeptical theism with the butterfly effect. Like he talks about the butterfly effect, effect in um, like chaos theory and stuff and like tries to, you know, it's just like, oh, well, you're ignorant of how the causal web all fits together and stuff. And like maybe this thing that seems bad is actually really important. And if you got rid of it, then there would be some kind of evil that's equally bad or worse that would pop up or there'd be there'd be some good that would go away um and of course that like directly leads to moral paralysis and skepticism about your moral faculties and ability to judge when things are actually unambiguously bad and it would be an unambiguous good to get rid of this thing from the world like i just think it would be unambiguously good to get rid of um child cancer <laughs> i think that would just be a an unalloyed good um but the butterfly effect so i guess i don't know yeah, yeah I, I don't understand how people can walk around like through their life thinking that. <laughs> yeah, well, especially because traditionally, I mean, at least in my view, Christianity's been associated with the more deontic type ethical view, and we're also called to be perfect, like God is. And obviously, Christians, you know, we believe God is different than us in some ways, but yeah, it just to me it creates this kind of um, just creates a lot of cognitive dissonance, but. All right, I do want to go to Q&A, and I do want to definitely have you back on to discuss more of these related topics. I just don't want this video to run super long so that people will hopefully watch the whole thing. But if you had another point, though, that you wanted me to respond to or that you wanted to make before the Q&A, um, I'll let you do that. No, no, I think we covered a bunch of interesting ground. <clears throat> and um, yeah, no, I'm happy to move to okay. Q&A, and hopefully it's not the last time that we... Uh, that we speak. So I'm not in any big rush. Oh, I, I, was, every point I was lying. I'm not going to invite you back. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll talk. Okay. So, um, if the so this person asks Nathaniel Robinson, if the creation originally was perfect and no free will and heaven has no evil and also free will, isn't the current existence of evil unnecessary? So I'm not totally sure i don't grant that there was creation originally perfect but no free will i mean i think god has free will and i think i think beings have free will but i, I guess this is kind of like the why not heaven now type yeah response. the problem of heaven yeah and i would respond obviously again similar lines that i went over um you know with, with the odyssey i was presenting that there needs to be a time of relationship entering um you know, whether somebody finds that satisfying or not is another question, but that would be how I would respond. I, I will say that one virtue of your theodicy, and speaking of John Buck, also of his theodicy, is just that you guys just acknowledge that, like, yeah, God obviously could have created a much better world, and there's moral reason to create a much better world, but there are these other moral considerations that lead us to think that he you know, shouldn't have started us off in heaven, basically. But there are some people who try to deny that he even could have done that. Like, he could have started us off in heaven. And it's like, 
it's just, you know, like I said, it, it, most of the Odysseys are so credulity straining. It's just, it's hard to get past the first couple paragraphs. Yeah. And, and I know you're Mitch, I know I need to do Q&A, but you're mentioning Thomas. And I know it's like, there's this popular view, like, and it's not all Thomas, but it's some that it's not just Thomas. It's like going within like classical theos, which tends to be Thomas, but where it's like God has no moral obligations. So therefore the problem of evil isn't a problem. And I, I find that response just like so unsatisfying. And I guess that could be a topic for another day, but it's just like, I don't like that response at all. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been reading, like I, I think I mentioned before, or maybe during, I, I was reading that all shall be saved by David Bentley Hart. And he's just like roasting Thomists, like, or he's just like, it's, it's so interesting how like their arguments just have, literally no rationally compelling force at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is often how I feel when I read Thomas. They just start off with these kind of bald assertions that I see no reason to accept. And they're like, well, it follows from my bald assertion that um, <laughs> that this would be the case. It's like, okay. Yeah. Thomism is um, an interesting phenomenon, but I'm, I'm not. And in fairness, I, I mean, I do have sympathies with some of the Thomas positions as a Roman Catholic, but like, but yeah, some of the, and again, like there's, schools of thought within Thomism. They don't all agree on everything. But yeah, I, I don't consider myself a Thomist. Sometimes people ask me that since I'm Catholic, but no, being Catholic doesn't mean you're a Thomist. So, okay, so Nicholas Strode asks, isn't this just a confusion of good with the desire to prevent suffering? Why would the presence of suffering challenge a justifying good? Um, not sure I totally understand Question, I, think it's what, I think it's what you were talking about at the beginning about people saying like, you know, trying to make some kind of distinction between evil and suffering. And I think we said at the outset that we're not really drawing a, a hard distinction between those things. Yeah. Suffering is bad. <laughs> if you're, if there's going to be suffering, there has to be, I mean, suffering is an intrinsically moral phenomenon like if you're going to allow if you're going to create or permit suffering there has to be some kind of moral justification for why you're doing so it's not just nothing and then nathaniel asked if you had i think this was a follow-up to other question but if you had god's power what would be the first thing you do what one evil would you address first does this make you more moral than god well i mean i think that like obviously if I had God's power, yeah, I mean, I would want to wipe out all the suffering in the world. But the, the question is the broader metaphysical constraints that God might be under given his um, obligation to be fair and, you know, this um, his causal relation to the world and such that, you know, I outlined. So if we were to say, well, like, if I was just like God, well, if I was just like God, then I'm going to say there are these other constraints. But if I just had um, logically conceivable power, like I could do anything that's logically, that seems logically coherent, then yeah, I mean, I would just wipe out all the horrendous suffering right now, but that, the question, that gets back into the Odyssey and such, so I don't know if you yeah. had anything you wanted to add to that. Um, if you had God's power, what would be the first thing you would do? What one evil would you address first? I think I would just get rid of, you know, child cancer or something, like there would be no children's oncology wards, and he says, does that make you more moral than God? Um, yes. Yeah, and obviously, in my view, no, because I'm going to say that God has a justifying reason. But that's, you know, what we're discussing. Okay, so Mark has got you here. I mean, I don't think you can answer this. So without <laughs> spouting out <laughs> a problem of good for the atheist. I mean, if I'm trying to construe this question, like, as charitably as possible, then... 
And in mm -hmm. fairness, Mark is uh, agnostic or maybe considers himself an atheist. I don't know. I mean, I don't, it depends what he means by that. I mean, uh, I think that there's like a mixture of good and ill. I'm not sure if evil significantly outweighs the good in our world. I'm, I'm kind of agnostic about that. Um, some people seem convinced, they think it's obvious that there's like way more suffering and way more evil in the world than good. And I'm not sure. I think like maybe at best it's like, you know, kind of a mix, <laughs> like kind of a balance. Um, so no, I think that's, I think that's best explained by indifference, that kind of mix. And certainly if there's more evil than good, then that's better explained by atheism. But um, yeah, I think that like on an atheist view, on like a naturalist view, on like a hypothesis of indifference, I think that you would expect kind of a mix of good and evil. You wouldn't expect to like be in hell or something <laughs> if, if atheism were true. So I don't really, th I mean, again, I'm not totally sure what the problem of good is, is supposed to be here, yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I get seen it thrown around and I'm, I interpret it as like some kind of moral or like moral argument, like atheism can't explain objective morality and that's a shorthand for that. And obviously, I mean, I don't. Oh, well then no, there's that. no, there are, there are naturalistic ways of grounding morality. You know, atheists can be, um, you know, realists about morals. They can believe in objective morality and there are plenty of interesting accounts, you know, and like the kind of moral argument that William Lane Craig offers where, he doesn't really even like lay out um, the different accounts of objective morality and then try to like debunk each of them. He just says, well, if God doesn't exist, there is no objective morality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think that, I mean, theism might have an explanatory advantage in appealing to moral knowledge, although I'm not huge on that argument, but I do think there could be some force there, but, but yeah, objective morality, I, I don't, I used, yeah, I've changed my mind. I mean, not recently, but I used to think that seemed correct. But no, I, I don't think that, I think for morality's um, objective, in my view, it's just necessary truth, like the mathematical fact. And I don't see how God would make it the case. Um, so yeah, I don't agree with the argue that. So writer John Buck um, asks, how could malevolent design come about though if God is the primary cause to all things? So I assume, well, okay, so I'm just gonna tailor it in regards to the Odyssey I was defending and it's like, it's because of that, and, and John knows I'm gonna respond to this, but like it's because of that partial causal conformity, it's not like, and I feel like this question is almost like implicitly assuming like malevolent design is like, like how can God create evil like sometimes people will phrase it like that and it's like well i don't think god literally creates evil like it's this like substance like god makes it's rather how can god allow suffering and it's like if you think there's a story as to like why god created the world as he did then that would be the explanation the question just is there a morally satisfying explanation for that but so to me this is kind of like basically reframing the, the same argument you put forward unless i'm not being fair No, I mean, I think it is like, I mean, God is ultimately responsible for malevolent design, though, because I, I think that even if you accept something like open theism, I don't really see how that would, I mean, it seems like God would have foreknowledge of um, teleological evil. So, I mean, and he is, I don't know, it does seem like he's ultimately responsible for the biological order. And certainly if you try to distance if you try to make it so God's not really responsible, then doesn't that kind of kill design arguments? If you try to like remove God, like, oh, he's not really responsible for 
um, you know, the way things <laughs> like appear. Well, then doesn't that kind of undercut, uh, you know, teleological arguments? Yeah, I'm not huge on teleologic arguments, so I wouldn't be as threatened, I guess, by that. But I do think, you know, you could still say God is responsible. It depends upon, I guess, how you how you cast it out. I, I do think you, as long as you're saying God's a creator and he, he instills the laws and such, then you could still make a teleological argument, but then try to explain why, you know, how that reconciles that with the theodicy. But that, that'll be a bigger question that We'll have to address at a later point, probably. Okay, so Mitchell Starkey asked, Emerson, have you heard the reform view of a theodicy? Uh, reformed as in like the reformed tradition? I'm not familiar. I think, with he's, like, I think he's like referring to like a Calvinist type view. And I, I don't know that there is just one. So maybe Mitchell, if you could like throw that in the chat for us real quick, if you want Emerson to address it. Um, because I'm not even sure what the reformed view necessarily means. Um, so let's go on to the next one. Um, I'm not sure that this is a question either that, that this might be a little need a little more expansion. Emerson, do you have an accurate view of who God is? And I don't, I'm just throwing out the question, <laughs> but obviously that's kind of an open-ended question. All right, Nicholas says, if some theodicy could work with special creation, doesn't the argument from animal suffering just become an argument for special creation? Why well, assume God didn't do it that way if we have reason to think he does? And I guess the way I'm interpreting your question, Nicholas, is... Um, like saying like if animal suffering or argument from evolutionary suffering seems to imply that God would specially create them, should we become a creationist? And I would oh, say, that's well, an awesome argument. That's a great Morian <laughs> shift. Yeah, it's like, hey, this argument actually works. Therefore, special creation is true. That's awesome. Well, and some creationists I've seen do make that kind of argument. Like I visited the Creation Museum once and they seem to be making that as like a primary argument creationism or like at least why christians should embrace now obviously they will say you know they think the science can be interpreted that way but then and i'm not an expert on evolutionary biology but like obviously you know there are reasons to favor that perspective i didn't know that i didn't know i thought it was all scientific arguments from them i didn't realize that they were saying like hey if god did bring about creation through evolution uh, no, that was their main <laughs> spiel to i mean they assumed i think they were talking to a christian audience but their primary thing was it was animal suffering they're like well god if god created the revolution then death preceded the fall like that was their now the museum oh, well, has that's, that's kind of a theological argument i thought they were saying right. like oh the i mean this would be such a cruel way for god no, to i think that they might have said that too I, I, granted it was a while back so i don't want to like say this is what they're saying and i want to misrepresent but i i think i have heard creationists have tended at least seemed like they've tended to to suggest that at times and yeah i would just say like yeah you really don't want to bite a bullet of rejecting scientific consensus to protect your theology it's better to just try to find a different route than that. if i could do anything tonight it's bolster young earth creationism that's mainly why i'm here um but yeah no that's uh, i mean because i mean i i actually do believe though that if we lived in the young earth creationist world like the one that ken ham thinks we actually do believe in then I, I mean, 
there would be a lot more evidence for theism. It would seem like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would, the probability of theism would be raised significantly if young earth creationists were right about the, <laughs> about the facts on the ground. John wants to know if you're preparing to be demolished. Um, yeah, I'm working on, so I'm debating John um, on the 26th about um, God's existence. And I'm just going to play a slideshow for 20 minutes of sad things. And um, that's going to be my entire argument and opening. I'm just going to do the emotional problem of evil. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's usually what atheists do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nathaniel asks, uh, do I apologize? The problem is that God should only allow necessary evil. But my point is that there is unnecessary evil casting a dark shadow upon the alleged goodness of God. Okay. So, like, yeah, I mean, I agree that evil, there is a lot of suffering that's not necessary in the sense that it doesn't lead to essential goods. Um, at least that would be my favorite approach. I do agree with that. The, the question, though, is, is there an overarching morally justified reason for creating a world like that? And then I, I presented a, a theodicy that I like. So um, that's what I'll say there. And then he said, consider the Good Samaritan. Jesus himself said that two people who could have done something but didn't were bad, and the person who acted was good. God does nothing. Well, again, like it, it <laughs> depends upon the... the uh, metaphysical parameters and the moral um, situation that God is in, in my view. So again, I would, you know, reappeal to the theodicy. But um, do you have any thoughts there, Emerson? I mean, the the initial thought of like, yeah, there appears to be unnecessary evil, and that's strong evidence against God. It's like, yeah, I agree with that basic sentiment. There does appear to be unnecessary evil, and it seems like if there's um, evil in our world, then there should be some kind of moral justification for it. If the foundation of reality is this like unsurpassably great being of perfect goodness and love, then there should be some kind of moral justification for the evil that we see. But it does seem like there is at least some unnecessary evil in our world. Yeah, I would agree that I think there is, it is unnecessary in the sense that it's not essential, but I would, I wouldn't grant that it's unnecessary in the sense that it has no overarching justifying reason. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole goal of the Odyssey, as I right. understand it, is like providing some kind of justification right. for the evil that we see. Right. Well, it's just because, like, sometimes people say, like, well, all theodicies are about explaining a greater good. And, like, I can grant that if that means, like, a justifying reason. And, like, I would say, like, the greatest good is, like, God creates to bring people to the heavenly paradise. But I wouldn't say every um, event of suffering was, like, absolutely essential for god's plan that's going to come down to the, the theodicy one embraces and i think that's a tough pill to swallow if one takes that route but okay so we got we did get an update though on the problem of good so it's smiling babies and cute puppies if there's no god how is that possible emerson why are there sad babies and ugly puppies if there is a god <laughs> check checkmate so it appeals where it, it appears we're at a stalemate here because there are also sad babies. <laughs> yeah, I mean to take the joke uh, too seriously. Again, like indifference just implies like a mix of of good and ill. Like that's what we would probably expect. So that there are good things. I mean, I remember Yuji Nagasawa having this thing called the problem of 
good for a or the problem of evil for atheists or something and it's yeah I, yeah i can't remember exactly what it is but it was i remember being kind of annoyed when i was listening to it but i think it was something like isn't life good enough to keep living or something it's like if atheism is true then why aren't you an anti-natalist i'm probably totally butchering the argument it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're just straw manning i mean it's like <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah i haven't read the paper but my i read the abstract and yeah, I was like saying, given all the evolutionary evil, or given the argument from evolutionary evil, like you should be a pessimist about the world, but atheists generally aren't. Or if they aren't, then that's like inconsistent with atheism because theism says like that will be redeemed or something like that. And I have not read the paper, but I, I struggle to find that argument sounding. It yeah, doesn't sound very I, I, strong to me. That sounds. So it's like an epistemic terribly. argument. It's not really like a sound like showing a contradiction and mostly be like saying oh you like you decipher your psychology but like okay like that doesn't mean something is the case like at least that's my thought but granted i have not read this paper yeah yeah i mean i just heard him interviewed on a podcast like a few years ago that's what i'm going off of so i'm not the best source of information on it but i generally like yujin nagasawa so um it's probably not as bad as it seems from the abstract but yeah i remember hearing him on the interview and being like atheism implies I should be a pessimist or something like I, I just wasn't really following what was going on yeah and I don't even know if I yeah there was a recent response to it and maybe that was the abstract I read so that anyways I just have a basic gist of what the argument is but all right Nathaniel Robertson says is it possible a simulation could exist that is so compelling that you don't know you're in it follow-up is it possible a simulation could be so compelling God doesn't know he's in it. So um, I, I think this is a little bit off topic, but um, I mean, maybe like I, for me, yeah, I mean, I think it's logically possible, like the matrix scenario, but I don't find it plausible. It just doesn't, it's not a hypothesis I entertain, but like could God, um, I mean, I guess it would seem like God, I mean, I, I'm inclined towards the view that like God being a metaphysically necessary being would just immediately recognize all the parameters of reality and recognize that he's not in a simulation. But even if one doesn't buy that, I mean, I would say God's omniscience means he knows everything that logically possibly could be known. So maybe he wouldn't have Cartesian certainty about that either, but that wouldn't bother me. So yeah, I, I think the point thoughts? is like you, well, like he, like you said, he wouldn't have Cartesian certainty. Like there could always be the nagging doubt of like, oh, someone programmed me to think that I'm omniscient and to think that I'm a necessary being and to think that I'm God. But I, I think that basically any conscious being is going to be susceptible to these kind of like Cartesian doubts, like, or like, you know, simulation worry. Like you can't really get away from radical skepticism entirely. Like it's not plausible. There are good arguments. Um, to the effect that we're probably not in a simulation or we're probably not um, a brain in a vat or whatever. But like, obviously you can't get rid of it entirely. Like it's, yeah. So I think that that's true for any conscious creature. So if God is a conscious being, then it's also true of him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely possible. I, I still feel inclined to think like God could get out of it, but I'm not, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. Okay, this is the last question from Tacit Reticence, or Reticence. For I apologize, even though I wholly reject it, I contend that simplistic young earth creationism makes the Odyssey far easier than any other model. True. Um, yeah, I mean, I can understand that. I'm not really inclined to agree with it. I mean, as John um, 
says, I mean, there's still animal suffering in it. And like, and I mean, the young earth creationist has to say that God like directly creates that while under the other evolutionary model, God sets up the laws. And I mean, I don't know that that's that much different, but yeah, I don't. Yeah, there's the fall, you know, and they have the best conception of the fall too. It's the most literal conception of the fall. So it's not really God's fault that there's teleological evil either. But when you think yeah, about like that's the, so the eons of animal suffering, like there, you know, we went from hundreds of millions of years of animal suffering and predation and carnivory and parasitism and death to um, 6,000 years of that. So we got rid of like 99.99999% of all of the, uh, of all of the uh, evidence that we were just discussing. One creature suffers unjustly, and there's not a justified yeah, reason for that. Sure. And I mean, that's still problematic. So I guess, I, yeah, I mean, intuitively, I obviously, yeah, I mean, it sounds like okay, but but then it's like the young Earth creationist, the Odyssey of appealing to a fall. I don't find plausible, even setting evolution aside. Like I don't find that a good the Odyssey. So it's like I'm not really that inclined to think young Earth creationism would help that much with this. There's still suffer animal suffering there's still teleological evil and then it yeah, yeah but i just a, don't find that model of, it's a direct result of the fall though like there yeah, you know there is are that these... a good is that like a morally justified explanation though um i mean, you, it's I mean to me it's kind of like the, the result of moral evil i mean like all natural evil is ultimately the result of moral evil but it kind of does make it easier but it seems like it didn't have to. Like God could have just kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, and there was no natural evil after that. Like this doesn't seem very morally satisfying to my mind. That like the world would be like thrown into chaos because of what they did, unless somebody brings some extra explanations to the table beyond that. Wait. So your, is your explanation of moral evil also the perfect wealthy odyssey? Yeah, I explain everything. <laughs> I kind of do. No, yeah, and, and we'll have to maybe follow up on that. Um, but yeah, I try to, well, kind of. I mean, I feel the free will, but I do think like horrendous moral suffering. Um, I, do, I do still, I, I am still inclined to think God would intervene, um, or at least that that's plausible. So yeah, I want to use the perfect wealth, the Odyssey, to explain like why God intervenes less. Now, that'll need a little more unpacking probably, but um well, yeah. I mean, if you think that free will can explain moral evil, and you think that the fall is a result of moral evil, and the fall is what is responsible for teleological evil and animal suffering, you know, the small amount of it that um, now exists in the young earth creationist world, like, then it seems like you everything could sort of come back to, you know, moral evil. So if you think it can be explained by free will, then I don't know. I mean, it does, this doesn't seem plausible to me, but I mean, neither does any other theodicy really to me, but it's, it just seems like the young earth creationist world is makes theism more plausible for other reasons as well. You know, like it's not just about um, making theodicy more uh, like making theodicy easier, making explaining evil a little easier of a project. Um, I think there are other features of the world <laughs> that would kind of make me think that God existed um, if the entire universe was 6,000 years old and all of these creatures were created pretty much in their present form <laughs> and human beings. Yeah, well, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. If young earth creationism were, you know, shown to be true or likely or whatever, like, yeah, I agree that would be evidence for God. But just looking at the problem of evil, I'm not, I don't think the creationist, young earth creationist, like, or at least literal understanding of Genesis is 
helps in my mind because it doesn't explain the mechanism that Adam and Eve sinning leads to teleological and, and whatever, any evils. Like, it seems like God is actually directly instituting it unless you bring in something else and then we need more of a story, like appealing to the devil or something. But, like, it doesn't, I'm not seeing like, the causal connections that are satisfying to my mind. But, but I'll, I'll just leave it there. Um, I don't know if you have any other, that was, that was the last question I was going to address, but is there anything else you wanted to share or comment on that or anything? Um, no, I mean, I, uh, I think we covered some interesting ground and yeah, like I said, I doubt it'll be the last time that we speak. So, um, I'm happy to leave it there, but yeah, thanks for having me on and I've enjoyed talking about the problem of evil and theodicies and stuff with you. I'm glad that you, um, take the problem of evil seriously you know, that's kind of one of my litmus tests for whether I take Christians seriously is if they think the problem of evil is like a real problem at all. Yeah, and I definitely think it is a serious problem. Again, it's the one thing that um, I think it's the most serious intellectual challenge to theism for sure. And then probably by extension Christianity. Um, so yeah, I definitely think it's a serious issue. Um, but yeah, if anybody's watching this later or whatever, um, if you guys, if there's things you want us to address specifically, uh, if you could leave a comment, um, that'll help us in determining like good conversation points. If there's things that weren't clear or that are could be interesting or whatever, and definitely check out Emerson's channel. I put a link to it in the description, and then he'll be debating John on his channel like this Sunday, right? Um, next or, Sunday. Oh, next. The twenty sixth. Oh, the Okay, so next. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and thanks for watching, everybody, and have a good night.